What a wonderful song to carry into your week at SISM. If we're going to be teaching the boys and girls, the young people about King Jesus, uh, we want to be worshipping him ourselves to teach out of hearts that are full of love for him. A number of years ago, I read a book which recorded a series of interviews with Bono, the lead singer of U2. And at the start of the book, when he was giving an explanation of why a book like this might be worthwhile, Bono said, there are stories to tell which are not songs. Uh, the point he was making was that there's a lot that you can know about him uh, by reading his lyrics, listening to his songs, you can learn a lot about Bono from his music, but there is, there's much more. There are stories to tell that aren't songs. The same is true for the biblical character of David. We can know a lot about David from his songs or his prayers. Uh, you maybe know this, David's associated with a lot of the Psalms uh, that we have, uh, that collection of 150 Psalms that we have in the Bible. We, we can see David there. We can hear him praise God, but also rage against God. We can see him lament and also repent. So we can learn a lot about David from the Psalms, but there's more to tell. There are stories to tell that aren't songs. The biblical narrative, the, the biblical witness doesn't scrimp on stories about David. David's life is the most narrated life in the whole of the Bible. So we know more about David than any other character in the whole of Scripture. We know about his growing up, but we know too about his dying. We know about his friends and about his enemies. We know about his sins and his salvation, his triumphs and his defeats. In fact, if you read the whole biblical record of David, you get a sense that not much has been left out. There's not been much photoshopping going on here. Um, I think what we learned in Sunday school might have been photoshopped and a bit selective, but the biblical narrative, not so much. It's because of this comprehensive nature of the, the narrative, the life of David, becomes a very important training ground for us. For any of those of us who want to learn well to live before God, to become faithful followers of Jesus Christ. As we read and as we meditate on, on the David story, God's word trains us to join with David and to become women and men after God's own heart. Neil explained last week that I had hoped to, to start to be with you last Sunday evening and to start this series then. He explained that while we're starting a new series of sorts, we're actually picking up a series that we had running last year. Uh, last spring, we studied the early chapters of 1 Samuel, uh, and we learned there about Samuel and Saul. And then on some evenings throughout last summer, we learned of the early David stories that are recorded in the second half of 1 Samuel. We, we were learning really about the days where you meet David, first of all, uh, and the David and Goliath sort of days until the period when he finally becomes king. Quite a lot happens between those two things happen. Uh, what, what we're looking at there is David as a young man, probably we're dealing with his 20s, 
It's David on the run for probably about 10 years, an asylum seeker in the wilderness of Judea. It's a part of the biblical witness that isn't very well known to, to most of us. We finished that story in that series in 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, and that's really where I want you to have your Bibles open before you to, to flick with me. Uh, I remember preaching that sermon at the end of that series where we learned of Saul's death and we saw David lament for Saul. It was a good place to, to pause the series because uh, Saul's been a significant character in the narrative for many, many chapters. And it's at this point that he exits uh, leaves the stage but it's clearly not the end of the David story so while it was a good place to pause it certainly wasn't a good place to finish and leave the story hanging entirely so so now we move into the the second half of the life of David as recorded in scripture so as we noticed when we read a moment ago in second Samuel 2 we reach a point where David is crowned king of Judah it's a whole new phase of his life with God. Before we begin this series in 2 Samuel 2, let's take a few moments to remember what we have learned about David so far in these stories. And by the way, as I'm teaching this evening, I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone. If, if you've been with us on Sunday evenings, you'll probably understand that better than a person who's a guest. So as well as preaching 2 Samuel chapters 2 to 4, as a, an early sermon in this series. I'm also gonna offer some encouragement for those who are on our book by book program because our, our books for the month of July are First and Second Samuel. So in a sense, what I'm trying to do this evening is talk a little bit about First Samuel to lead us up to Second uh, Samuel. I hope that'll be helpful for all of us for this evening, but also an encouragement to those in the, the book by book program. By the way, let me take a moment to plug book by book. If you're someone who has never heard me mention that before, book by book is a, a Bible reading program that we have established here in the church where we're encouraging ourselves to try and read the whole Bible. And the way we're doing that is, is a way we have chosen to do it. We read one book of the Bible each month. And then at the end of that month, anybody who wants to can come to a gathering where we talk about it. So if, if you want to learn more about that, grab one of these uh, little brochures. We have them on the, the welcome table and at some of the exits. Grab one of those and you'll see an invitation there to read God's word for yourself. The book of 1 Samuel begins when Samuel the prophet uh, arrives, sorry, the life of David, not the book of 1 Samuel. The, the book, the life of David in scripture begins when Samuel the prophet arrives in Bethlehem to choose a new king. Saul's still on the throne, so this is a pretty, uh, pretty dangerous thing to be doing, to be approaching someone else to appoint them as king. Against the prophet's better judgment and seemingly against all odds, it's a youngest brother the runt of Jesse's litter, who is chosen by God and anointed that day as king. I think that story gives us a beautiful reminder of God's grace in election. God sees us 
when other people don't see us. God chooses us for roles that nobody else would ever give us. Sometime later, when David stands in, in a valley with the Israelite army, we begin to see what he's all about. He, he's looking at a, a Philistine giant that nobody has the courage to confront, a guy called Goliath. Everybody sees an undefeatable giant, but David sees something else. David has different eyes. He sees not this pretty tall guy standing in front of him. He sees behind him, towering above Goliath, he sees his God and the God of Israel. And he says, he, he speaks to the, the crowd around him that day. He reminds them that God is there and that God will protect them. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. There are those years then when he, he lives in Saul's court. I, I don't know if you remember that. He's initially a palace musician. David in those years never loses sight of of who he is. He allows God to encourage him and to keep him on the right track. He does that especially, you'll remember, through his friendship with Jonathan. He allows friendship to be a vehicle of God's grace in his life. When he finally realizes that his life's in danger and he flees the palace, he goes straight away to the one place he expects to find refuge, to the house of God. David feeds on holy bread. He's armed with a sword for the hard times ahead. And we get this sense of David as being somebody who's equipped by the living God. When he needs help, he, he goes to the house of God and he gets the help that he needs there. When he retreats to the wilderness and he's not sure how to lead his men, we repeatedly read of occasions where he inquired of the Lord. That's the phrase that's used. Whenever he's weak and he's running on empty, we read another phrase, David found strength in the Lord. Even in these harsh, seemingly God-forsaken environments, David is still living before God. Twice, you'll remember. Remember twice he had the opportunity to kill Saul. That's exactly what you do in these circumstances. If your enemy's before you and you have power over them, you kill them. But not David. He will not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, no matter how much he has to gain. Do you remember what happened in that incident where he, he was in a murderous rage with uh, Nabal? Nabal gets a mention in our passage this evening. David allowed God to speak to him whenever his wife Abigail, Nabal's wife Abigail, came to him. I wonder are we good at that? Allowing God to interrupt us. When we're, I'm going to use the phrase hell-bent, when we're, when we're all stoked up and, and ready to do something, can we allow God to interrupt us? David did. Even when David's life was so compromised that he had to go and serve as a, a double agent behind enemy lines, we found that God hadn't left him. In that moment where he couldn't do anything for himself, God stepped in and saved him. Folks, whenever I take all of those incidents and put them side by side and try to get a, a feel and an overview for this life of David, 
I think we find here a young man whose life is absolutely saturated with the presence of God. It doesn't matter whether he's winning or losing, whether he's in danger or whether he's secure, whether his circumstances are ideal or not. His life is always oriented toward God. His first instinct is always to go back to God. There's a, a song by Rand Collective that reminds me of David at this point. It's called Movements. It, it speaks of a life where we allow every circumstance to move us back toward God. The good times and the bad. I thought it might be nice to break up our teaching this evening to watch a couple of minutes of a lyrics video. Um, don't, don't be deceived by the skateboarding video, all right? or the, the sunny pop sound, listen to what's being said because it's an immensely profound invitation to live a life where everything brings us back to Jesus. Whenever I hear that song, it, it, as I say, it puts me in mind of David. I can imagine if he was writing his psalms in the 21st century that they might sound a little bit like that. I'm running fast and free to you. You are the movement and fight in me.
movements, taking every circumstance of life and allowing them to catalyze uh, a new movement back towards God. I think that's why the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. David fails, we're, we're going to see that in this series, he fails sometimes catastrophically, he fails more often than, than we realize and, and care to dwell on. But whenever people point it out to him, then he moves. He goes back to the Lord. Folks, this is what God wants for each one of us. He wants us to be always moving back toward him, living more and more of our lives, more and more open to him. So we've had a chance to think about David so far and I've, I've deliberately given a, a good chunk of time to that. As I say, it'll help with our, our book by book work this month. We're going to spend the remainder of our time this evening looking at these chapters two to four. Earlier in our service, we, we read, so please have your Bibles open, chapter two. It tells the story of the time when David is finally made king. Verse four, the men of Judah came to Hebron where they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. This is a big moment. He's spent the best part of a decade as a fugitive on the run. Uh, and David is finally being recognized as the king that he, he was told he was going to be when he was that wee boy, that wee shepherd boy, called in at the end of a long family gathering and anointed to, to be king. Notice, though, that he's king here, not, not of all of the land, but only of, of Judah. The other 11 tribes are not yet under his rule. In the opening verse of the chapter, we get a lovely wee indicator of David's closeness to God at this point. I wonder, did you notice it? We're told again that David inquired of the Lord. I, I went back and I checked the, the biblical text. I had a sense that that phrase repeats. This isn't the first time we hear it. It's been used four times previously by the narrator to tell us about David's open posture before God. Five times now this refrain has sounded in the David story. Inquiring of God is, is as natural for David as drawing breath. Lord, how would you have me live? What, what do you want me to do? Do you do much of that? Do you find yourself, rather than telling God what you want him to do for you, asking him what he would have you do for him? That's what David does. Isn't that part of what it means to be a person after God's own heart? We're going to move pretty quickly this evening through these three chapters and the reason we're going to go through them pretty quickly is because David isn't really at the forefront of them. They, they tell stories of things that happen around David. Other people take center stage and he's, he's pushed a little bit into the background. We don't want to pass over this part of God's word though. And by tracing David's involvement in it and by paying careful attention, we can learn more about this life that God calls us to. 
Let me try very briefly to give you a synopsis of chapters 2 to 4. Feel free to follow in your Bible, use the headings or skim the verses as I, as I try to explain. We've already noticed that David is now king, but only of the tribe of Judah. Abner, a commander in Saul's army, he, he wants to stay loyal to Saul and Saul's line. So he takes one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and makes him king of the remaining 11 tribes. Now, no country is big enough for two kings, so inevitably Israel goes into civil war. Abner commands the troops loyal to Ishbosheth, while Joab commands David's men. In the course of a battle, a significant uh, turn of events, Abner kills Asael, Joab's youngest brother. We'll come back to that in a moment because that becomes important. In the opening verse of chapter 3, we read a summary of how this war is playing out. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. If you take the opportunity to read this story, you'll see that it has more twists than a well-scripted thriller. By the way, in this series, since we're, we're tracing God's work in David's life, recorded in these long narratives, we have to read and deal with relatively long sections to, to see how the plot develops. I'd encourage you, if you want to make the most of this, to, to read Second Samuel along with our preaching series. Read a, a few chapters ahead so that you, you're able to, to see where we're going as we look at these longer passages and I've already said the best way of all to do that is just join us in book by book read first and second Samuel uh, this month okay back to the story in chapter three as a result of some pretty typical sex and power political dynamics we learn that Abner falls out with Ishbosheth. So the commander falls out with his king. We discover that Abner now wants to come over to, to switch his allegiance to David. So he's meeting with David and he's making plans for finally bringing the whole of Israel under his rule. You can read about that in the opening verses of chapter 3 under the heading, Abner goes over to David. Re-enter Joab, the commander loyal to David. He is furious with David for allowing this sworn enemy to come and to go peacefully. So he suggests that Abner's visit was a, a spying mission and he leaves David's presence. He hunts Abner down and he kills him in cold blood. And he does this to avenge the death of his youngest brother as a hell. David is appalled by what Joab has done. But there's nothing he can do other than mourn the passing of a great Israelite. We can read that in verses 22 to 39 under that heading, Joab murders Abner. In chapter 4, the power struggle continues. Without Abner to protect him, Ishbosheth then is murdered by two of his own men. They do the kind of thing that people did in those days. They cut off Ishbosheth's head, they bring it to David, and they expect David to thank him for bringing him his enemy's head. Instead, David tells them 
what happened on a previous occasion when a man came to him claiming to have killed Saul. Verse 10 of chapter 4, I seized him and put him to death. So there and then David commanded the same sentence to be served on these two opportunists. No matter how much of his life he's lived in opposition to the house of Saul, David will never lift his hand against the Lord's anointed or his descendants. David respects God's anointed rule. Okay. We're going to spend the last few moments this evening thinking about what these chapters have to teach us regarding David's ongoing life with God, but but even more importantly, our ongoing life with Jesus. Here's the thing. David's been in the wilderness all those years, chased by Saul. You would think that this this is the best of times. Finally, his exile's over. He's been anointed king. David's in his prime. Surely these are the perfect conditions to live out the life of God. Actually, as we've seen, it turns out to be much less straightforward than that. Leading his own life and leading God's people is as much of a struggle as ever. Although he's king, in some respects, David feels helpless. That's a reality that's often lost on people who've never been charged with the responsibility of leadership. They look at leaders and imagine that to be in a position of leadership means that we we carry endless power and that our will is never thwarted. Ask anyone who's ever been charged with leadership and they will tell you that it isn't so. Look at the last couple of verses of chapter 3. This is where we're going to let our focus land for a few moments. David's talking to his men in the aftermath of Joab murdering Abner in cold blood. Then the king said to his men, Do you not realize that a prince and a great man has fallen in Israel today? And today, though I am anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his deeds. Though I'm the anointed king, says David, I am weak. And these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. The sons of Zeruiah, he's talking about Joab and Abishai, but particularly I think about Joab. They've just avenged themselves on Abner in return for the murder of their younger brother, Asael. Joab, to use an Ulster expression, is turning David's head. Eugene Peterson imagines at this point a monologue that's being written in David's head as he thinks about these men. Their vendettas, their plots, their jealousy, their anger, they're wearing me out. I know that I want to be growing in my life with God and I know that I'm responsible for leading God's people to love him. But these sons of Zeruiah, they're wearing me out. They take so much of my time and energy. I'm trying to get on with the work that God's called me to, but all the while I have to be looking over my shoulder to see what they're up to. 
They think they're on my side. They think that they're helping. They think that I should be grateful to them. But they don't understand anything about God. They have no idea that we're trying to live as the people of God. These sons of Zariah are wearing me out. They're too much for me. When we read a passage like this, 2 Samuel chapters 2 to 4, in the middle of an often glorious David story, we might naturally ask, what's this doing in the Bible? Why is it even there? I don't want to read about people like Abner and Joab. I get enough of their type in the, in the newspapers or on, on reality TV or in church. I want the David story, the good David story. I want the good news and the gospel. I want to read about Jesus. What the Bible needs is a good editor. Why waste all that God's word ink on people like Abner and Joab? I wonder if you know the answer yourself. Why, why is this stuff in the Bible? Why are the stories of difficult people in Scripture? It seems to me the answer is obvious, even if we may not like it. This is the context. This is the company of people in which God chooses to work out our salvation. This is where we learn to be men and women after God's own heart. Abner and Joab are in the David story, and the sooner we get used to it, the better. We, we are going to find wonderful companions in this life of discipleship, men and women of grace and of beauty, of loyalty and of prayer. David had them around him. He had Jonathan, he had Abigail, he had Samuel and Ahimelech. But we're going to find Abner's and Joab's and others like them along the way. As I was reading Peterson's imagined monologue for David in his dealings with the sons of Zuriah, I couldn't help but think only a pastor would write that. Pastors and elders, those who try to lead other people in, in the life of discipleship, will know how disappointing the real lives of those real disciples that they're trying to lead really is. Sometimes it gets too much and it wears us out. It makes us want to quit. I've been talking here about leaders, but actually anyone who spends a meaningful amount of time in the family of God will know what I'm talking about in the church, the community of Jesus. You will know this from experience. We join churches hoping to find love and support and we find that the very people that we once counted as our dearest allies, they turn out to be the ones who are making our lives miserable. And worse still, they sometimes don't even seem to know that they're doing it. The problem is, often they're not interested in God's interest. Not really. And we often find ourselves sharing David's sentiments. I am weak. And these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. 
Look, so I want you to do two things. See, see that verse? Try and, try and remember it and commit it to memory. I'm weak and the sons of Zariah are too strong for me. I first came across it 20 years ago. And it helped me understand times when I felt exasperated by people around me. So, so two things to do. One, one to commit that idea to, to memory. Recognize it as part of scripture. The second thing to do is to remember that you might well be a son of Zariah to somebody else. I am weak, and these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. I'd like to finish by offering you a huge encouragement from this seemingly very discouraging chunk of the Bible. Suddenly, all of our frustrations that we have in church life, we can see in a new light. What we tend to do when we're finding our relationships difficult in church is we imagine that we've fallen on some very, un, you know, some very unlikely season. Church is normally perfect, but I happen to be hitting these speed bumps. No. The sons of Zariah are in the story. And every other part of the Bible you read, people who are trying to live for God find there are characters around him who are making life difficult. Do you want to test that with me for a moment? David's not alone in his frustrating relationships. Jesus had endlessly frustrating relationships. His disciples, what were they? They were slow to learn. Oh, ye of little faith. One betrays him, another one denies him. They all abandon him. The religious leaders of his day, they weren't polite about their hatred for Jesus. Their, their absolute passion was to see him killed. That's the relational context in which Jesus Christ, God among us, lived. What about Paul's life with other people? We saw that again recently in the study that we had here in 1 Thessalonians. Invariably, this is what happens for Paul. He goes into a city to preach the gospel. He goes in through the front door. And within a short period of time, he has to leave either through a window or in a basket or in the dead of night because people are trying to kill him. That's how Paul's relationships worked. And even where he did manage to establish churches, uh, people whom he, he poured his life into them, well, if you know anything about his, his letters, often he has to write to them about, about very difficult uh, conversations. He has to have difficult conversations with them. So folks, if we read the Bible and take it seriously, what we are gonna discover is that our imperfect communities are entirely normal and entirely biblical. Is that, I'm trying to work out, is that encouraging or discouraging? Probably both, isn't it? It's encouraging we're not on our own. It's discouraging there, there's no quick fix here. Hamilton Road's not going to be perfect, at least not before school starts again. Folks, if this is true, then it means that Hamilton Road, with all of our grumbling and our gossip, all of our pettiness and petulance is also entirely normal and entirely biblical. 
And it's wonderfully comforting to know that this is the context in which God works out salvation. It was among these sons of Zeruiah that David grew to be that man after God's own heart. And it's here, right here, in this gathering, among people every bit as shabby as us, that we're going to keep growing by God's grace to be women and men after God's own heart here too. No matter how difficult people make the life of faith in Jesus, they cannot destroy it. I can't do that for you, and you can't do that for me. Isn't that good news? He's the king. He's on the throne. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word because it takes us to places that we ordinarily wouldn't choose to go. We're too polite. We often won't say what we see. We won't let our lips say what our hearts feel. Lord, the truth is we often find our lives together very difficult. We find people around us difficult. We're like David. We say, I am weak and these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. Lord, we thank you for your grace that's sufficient. We thank you that you forgive us for all those ways in which we fail you and other people. Lord, teach us to extend that same grace to others who we feel are failing us. And Lord, help us to trust you that even as we, we struggle together, that you are building your kingdom. Thank you for what we read in your word at the outset of this service, that one day the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. Lord, build your kingdom here among us, even us. We pray. Amen.